Hello, you're listening to ET Property Podcast with Sarah Jackman. Today, we have episode three of our new monthly podcast series, In on the Act, in which I discuss a legislative topic with a member of Falcon Chambers. For this edition, I'm joined by Mark Sefton QC to discuss a key piece of legislation for real estate professionals, the Landlord and Tenants Act 1954, often referred to simply as the 54 Act. The Act sets out the rights and obligations of those renting and leasing premises and was originally created to provide security of tenure to business tenants. In recent years, there have been calls for its reform and in December 2020, an announcement from government that they would be reviewing it. Mark, many thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. Really nice to, to have you on in on the Act. The 54 Act will be familiar to, I'm sure, the majority of our listeners, but perhaps you can just start by explaining the rationale behind it. What exactly did it set out to do? Well, it's easy to forget. It came in nine years after the end of the Second World War. This was a very different world. Cities had been bombed. They hadn't yet been rebuilt. On the supply side, there was a major shortage of commercial property. On the demand side, there wasn't any working from home in 1954, and there certainly wasn't any internet shopping. And the result was that there was a real imbalance of bargaining power. That's what the Act was brought in to deal with. It was brought in to to protect tenants from exploitation by landlords. Uh, And that's why Tenancy on the Act called protected tenancies. It was to protect tenants from from the market forces that existed in 1954. It's a real question whether they still exist now. Okay, I mean, that's that's a, a good point. We do, I guess, live in a very different climate today. And I guess retail space is very much more plentiful. Tell me a little bit about the extent to which it's still relevant and, and still used in, in today's landlord and tenants context. Well, it's definitely still used. It's definitely still used a lot. If you happen to have a protected tenancy, then you can compel a landlord to renew your lease. And more importantly, you can you can very often do that in circumstances where the landlord really doesn't want you to, really wants to do something else with the land, like redevelop. And that, that's one of the areas where the Act's becoming increasingly problematic. Perhaps we can touch on that. Um, I know we, we've had relatively recently the S. Francis versus Cavendish Hotel decision, which dealt with lease renewal under Grand F of Section 30, subsection 1 of the 54 Act. Tell us a little bit about what happened in that case. Well, actually, to understand why that case is so important, you actually have to rewind a little bit and go back to what the Act was trying to do in the first place because one of the things the act was trying not to do was to stop people from redeveloping they understood even in 1954 that it's essential to a functioning economy that you can redevelop property to meet changing needs so they included ground f which allowed a landlord to oppose a renewal if it intended to redevelop but if you go back to 1954 the way people used to redevelop was very different in 1954 if you wanted to redevelop a site containing a Georgian townhouse, you knocked it down, demolished it, and you built something new in its place. And that's how Ground F was designed. If you look at Ground F, what it says is that it defines redevelopment in terms of demolishing and reconstructing, either all of what's there or a substantial part of it. Now, that made sense in 1954. But over time, the way people redeveloped 
changed. You don't knock down Georgian townhouses anymore. The planners would never let you, even if you wanted to. A lot of redevelopment work now, particularly in cities, involves preserving the fabric or a lot of the fabric of what is already there and redeveloping around it in a way that's more sensitive. Now, what that meant was that increasingly the definition of redevelopment in the Act didn't really work for the sort of development that was actually going on. And what that meant in turn was that developers who wanted to redevelop would go and get legal advice from people like me about what to do, because they're caught on the one hand between the planners who want them not to demolish very much and ground effort, which seems to require them to demolish quite a lot. And the result was that people were advised to design schemes that maximise the amount of demolition work in order to maximise the chance of satisfying ground F and being able to redevelop. So all over London, Sarah, there are basement floors that are about a foot lower than they need to be because developers have been advised to do that to increase the quantity of demolition work. So that's the situation we were in before Francis and Cavendish came along. And then along comes Lord Sumption with his size 12 boots and says, well, hang on a second, guys, your, your intention to redevelopment doesn't count if it's conditional. What did he mean by conditional? He said, well, it's conditional if you only intend to do the work in order to satisfy ground F. In that event, he said, your intention doesn't work for ground F. And so now you're prevented from doing the only thing that was actually sort of keeping the show on the road in the first place. Now there is a very, very real problem here because you've got your, your court between the planners who require you to preserve a lot of fabric and the act that requires you to demolish a lot and the scheme that, that was enabling the show to carry on has now been taken away. And there's a real, real problem. Where we are now is that, in effect, you either have to hand over a slug of money to the tenant to get rid of him, or you have to be very secretive. And I mean, I've heard anecdotally that the pe people are now taking legal advice but insisting that nothing's written down. So that's the craziness of the, the situation we're now in. So it's created quite a sort of practical difficulty then for landlords. To what extent does that practical ramification of that case strengthen the case for reform of the 54 Act? Interesting. I, I was looking back uh, over some of the past Law Commission reports into reform. And as long as it goes 1992, there was a Law Commission report where they recognised exactly this problem. They said the problem is the nature of redevelopment has changed and, and ground F doesn't really meet the situation anymore. But they thought it would be too complicated in 1992 to reform the definition of redevelopment. So they just left it where it is. And, and that's why we've ended up where, where we are. I mean, it seems to me that something's got to give at this point. That everybody is, is, is dancing a very complicated dance around what is a very important issue for the regeneration of cities. Just thinking then about another area where attention exists. I know there are issues in relation to valuation formula when calculating rent under a new lease. Can you explain a little bit about the context around that and, and the challenges that exist there? Yeah, well, this is another real problem. So the valuation formula in the Act goes back to 1969 hasn't been changed at all for 53 years. In the rest of the world, in, in other valuation contexts like rent review, 
all sorts of problems have been identified over the years. And one, one particular problem that dates back to the 1980s, it came up in the famous 99 Bishopsgate case, was that if your valuation formula doesn't give the hypothetical tenant a notional rent-free fitting out period, then the result is that the hypothetical tenant is worse off than real tenants are in the real world. That means the hypothetical tenant discounts his rental bid, and that means that the actual tenant gets a discounted rent gets a discounted rent on the basis that he notionally has to fit out the premises when in reality he doesn't. So that's a, an unfair result that no, nobody ever really intended. And so in the rent review world, people have fixed that. They've drafted new assumptions, which are now commonplace. They go into valuation formulae, all valuation formulae, which, which deal with this, make, make sure the unfairness doesn't arise. The 1954 Act has, has sailed on completely unchanged. And the courts have really struggled to know what to do about that. In, in 1990, in a, the Max Maron Prudential case, the judge effectively cheated to get to a fair result. And that stood for about a decade or so. And then in 2012, HMV and Mount Eden, the judge came along and said, no, that's wrong. You have to apply the formula as it stands, even though that produces an unfair result. And that seemed to settle things. But then last year we had H. Putten Boots and the third judge came along and effectively went back to the Max Morrow approach. So now where we are is you simply have no idea. You don't know on what basis a judge is going to fix the rent. Is he going to do it the way the judge did in H. Putten Boots or the way he did it in H. HMV and Mount Eden? And, you know, you've got the same problem with PACT. I mean, a lot of people very sensibly send the rental questions off to an arbitrator under PACT. But... Uh, anecdotally, I can tell you that you know, some arbitrators take the boots approach, some arbitrators take the HMV approach, and you simply don't know what you're going to get. And one of the reasons that's such a problem is if you can't predict, if the process evaluation isn't predictable because you don't know the basis on which the rent's going to be fixed, then disputes that ought to settle end up fighting, and, that, and that's no good for, for everybody. You mentioned issues that ought to settle going to court. To what extent do 54 Act disputes feature as part of the court time? I mean, how how often a, a case is under the 54 Act being litigated? All the time. I mean, I say all the time. They they don't go to trial that often, but the ability to litigate something can be used to extract a commercial advantage. And, and it quite often is. I mean, I, I was looking last week at a, a very large development, which the developer would have wanted to start in 2021. The developer issued proceedings in November 2020. We're in June 2022. He hasn't got a trial date yet. Now, if you're a developer wanting to put up a very large development, and you've got one tenant remaining on site. This is a problem. The tenant can hold up the development for, for many years and tenants use that to extract commercial leverage. A number of issues then cropping up and, and potentially signposting that the time you know, is, is perhaps coming for another look at the Act and, and potential for reform. And we obviously had that announcement, which was very underneath a, a number of other details in relation to um, landlord and tenant law from the government a couple of years ago now. 
Do you think that we are sort of reaching a time when the Act needs to be looked at? And, and what can we expect in, in terms of an agenda for reform going forward? Well, I think there's a difference, Sarah, between where we've ended up and what the government's likely to do about it. I mean, I think we've reached the point where we really need to look very seriously about whether we keep the legislation at all. But the, the direction of travel from this government seems to be, unusual perhaps for a Conservative government, seems to be in the direction of more regulation of the property sector rather than less. I mean, you just look at the, the Renters' Reform Bill announcement last week, and the government's reintroducing rent control and the full panoply of security of tenure in the, the residential sector. Uh, and maybe the, you know, the commercial sector will be looked at a little differently, but it's not easy to predict that the government's going to be as bold as it probably should be. You mentioned in 1992 the Law Commission reporting on the 54 Act and really touching on some of the sort of complexities that specifically was in relation to, to redevelopment. But what are the other issues really for anyone coming to look at the 54 Act? I mean, what are the challenges in terms of looking at how it might be revised going forward? I think the difficulty, Sarah, is that it's actually the same difficulty the government's about to discover in the residential sector, which is that rent control, security of tenure, go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. You can't have rent control without security of tenure because uh, a landlord can just avoid the rent control by evicting the tenant. You can't have security of tenure without rent control because if you just have security of tenure but no rent control, then the landlord can evict the tenant by increasing the rent to a massively high figure and force the tenant out that way. So any any form of regulation necessarily involves both rent control and security of tenure. So you've got to you've got to have both. And that's why I say in, in a sense that you've either got to get rid of the whole thing entirely, or I suppose if you're going to keep rent control and you're going to keep security of tenure, you've then got to look very carefully about whether there's some way of redesigning things like ground F to make them work in today's environment. I mean, in 1992, the Law Commission looked at this and they just shrugged and said, well, we, we can't think of any way in which you can redesign the definition of redevelopment to make it work with the sort of redevelopments that are happening nowadays. And I've, I've some sympathy with that. Mm. Uh, but if you can't redesign those grounds satisfactorily, then you have to, as it were, you, you can't get rid of the security of tenure, but leave in the rent control because that becomes meaningless then. So you, it's an all or nothing thing, I think. And do you get a sense just from advising on a number of these issues and being out in the marketplace of what people would like to see if there were to be reform of the Act? Well, I think they'd like to see reform of ground death. That's top of everybody's wish list because that's the thing that causes the most problems. And I know there was the um, announcement a couple of years ago about the government potentially um, looking at the issue again. Do you have any sense of timing in, in terms of when we might see something? I know things have rather shifted in terms of focus to the residential sector, but is it likely that we will see commercial coming back on the agenda at some point? Well, I, I tried to find out and there's a worrying degree of silence, Sarah. <laughs> Um, there isn't a lot of chatter out there about what, what might be happening. I, I think the focus has shifted. I think this is very low down the list of the government's 
current interests. I think they're interested in the residential sector and really the commercial sector. They're just leaving to look after itself. All right. Well, thank you for giving us a flavour of, of some of those potential difficulties around um, reform of the Act. And I guess it, it sounds very much a question of watch this space for the time being. <laughs> very much so, yes. All right. Thanks very much for your time today, Mark. It's been really good to speak to you. Thank you, Sarah. That was in on the Act from EG with Sarah Jackman. For more on the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954 and related case law, see the EGI archive at egi.co.uk.